when I do mask, it feels like like I almost have to like pretend to be something I'm not, and I don't think anyone should feel like that. Okay. And there are a lot of people out there that do mask more than I have, mm. like for their whole lives, and I can see it, and it just makes me like hurt mm. because I know how it feels to constantly mask. And it's just really unfair that like almost society has put on the pressure for you to be perfect and not neurodiverse and mm. not socially awkward or having panic attacks or anything. Yeah. And it's, it's really not fair. Hey Brian, thanks so much for listening again in part one of neurotypical bias which you should listen to if you haven't yet you would get some insights into my world as emily and i travel to school every day and engage on all sorts of topics so we don't normally talk about her neurodiversity but topics will range from astrophysics to the extent of the universe to tree bark and frogs um to all sorts of things that her inquiring mind uh, latches onto. Um, and I sometimes don't have the answers to those things. <laughs> but uh, car journeys are fascinating. That's my favorite time of the day with her. In the second and third part of this three-part episode, I get to connect with Nina Griffiths, who is also a parent of a kiddo with autism. And my hope is that our conversation will, A, give you some insights into our world and the world of our children, but B, also, if you are particularly neurotypical, um, give you some insights into how best to engage with folk who don't present in the world as you do, and to hold space for people who maybe struggle with things that you find easy, but also have incredible if you like superpowers in in other regards and so essentially this conversation is about opening up more opportunities for inclusion in the world um, and i hope you listen with intent and that maybe your eyes are opened to some new and fresh ways of thinking I am really excited to be joined by Nina Griffiths for this conversation about neurotypical bias, um, particularly as it relates to what parents of neurodiverse kids would like you to know. And so just a little bit of history and background to this conversation. I think it was in 1999 and 2000, I was Nina's English teacher. Indeed you were. <laughs> and I don't know how much English we actually did. But um, <laughs> a fair amount, a fair amount. I have really good memories of those years. So my memory of it basically is just that um, there, was, there was this young teacher who actually engaged with the kids as human beings, which was really rare at that, like at that point in time. So I think that's, that's where you kind of like, you know, you came in and you were engaging with us in a real way, which was amazing. Yeah, thanks, and I think yeah, I think I learned so much in those years, and I probably made many mistakes, but um, they were very, very, very fun years. But over time, Kananina and I have connected on social media and whatever. And then last year, particularly, I started posting 
a lot about neurodiversity and autism and other things. And Nina, you reached out to me and said, hey, I've noticed you posting about this a lot. Uh, why is that? And so I shared my own journey with our youngest, who was diagnosed with autism last year, and just the journey we've gone through in terms of learning how to reparent and figuring out schooling for her and all of that kind of stuff. Um, and I think, you know, you reached out to me at a time where I just felt where we felt kind of alone. So it was really great to hear. And since then, other people have also connected with us, but it, it was just great to have you reach out and, and share a little bit of your own story and your own experience of this. So before we dive into some of the deeper questions, Nina, I'd, I'd love folk to get a sense of who you are, um, first of all, and then maybe just to share a little bit about your experience as a parent of a neurodiverse child. And then we can launch into some of those things of, you know, like getting to the nitty gritty of what we'd like mm. folk to know about this journey. Great. Um, yeah, so I am South African living in the UK. I followed my partner here about 10 years ago. We had a little boy in 2016 and it was our first child. And just also upfront, just to say like, I want him to be able to listen to this in the future and, you know, feel like, feel the love. So um, we, obviously we adored him. We were deeply in love and we didn't notice or we didn't know enough about neurodiversity to notice that there was anything untypical about him, if that makes sense. So we just, we just parented, we just loved him. We just, um, as any parent would do, you know, we um, exposed him to more things that he was interested in. We, he was, he was cheerful, he was happy, he was engaging. And then when he got to preschool, which in the UK, they start preschool they could either be private or school-based preschool. The state basically pays for preschool from age three. We started getting notes back saying, we, um, we think there might be something going on here, which we were like, well, you know, he's really young for the year. He's a summer baby, which here means if he's born in the summer, he's basically going in and he's a year younger than some of the other kids. And um, we, we didn't really think much of it. They referred him to speech and language Speech and language saw him, and that's when it started slowly trickling through for us that there might be something different about our boy. And for us, the process was really long and slow coming to terms with and understanding what autism means. It wasn't something that I was like, oh, this is it. This explains all the things that the teachers have said. It took us a while to get to know what autism meant to us because of not we'd never really known anybody with autism until then well we we thought we didn't <laughs> um, but as we got to know more about autism later on we realized there was autism all around us um so um it took us a, it took us a few i would say it took us at least two or three years to come to terms with it in and in that process we were learning the whole time we were reading we were engaging with other parents of autistic children we were getting to know our boy better um so we are now three years on from from there, he got diagnosed when he was five. He just turned five years old. Um, and yeah, he is a brilliant, great, wonderful human being. Um, yeah. 
I love hearing people's stories. So thank you for sharing that. Um, and thank you for sharing it. I think I, I just get a sense of the care with which you hold your boy in the way that you're sharing the story. So, so thank you for that. So much of what you share resonates with me in terms of our story with M, the thing that things that stand out. So the, the big difference was, is M was 12 before she was diagnosed. And I think the experience we've realized with, with girls is that girls tend to mask much, much more than boys. And so much more. In, in many ways, that was the most heartbreaking thing mm. for us because for so many years, you know, and M says this herself, um, and I'm hoping that she'll share this in her own words in the introduction as well. But um, she masked for so many years and lived a life that wasn't truly her. And so when, when that mask came off, as difficult as some of the things were as parents to, to wrestle through in terms of getting to know our daughter again for who she really is, you know, just the sense of relief that she wasn't carrying that burden. Um, but the thing, the things that resonate with me about, you know, your story is I think firstly, the understanding that we were able to gain just because we, we kind of knew what she was facing and we had language for that and we had people who supported us and were helping us to understand. The other thing was in her process of, of understanding who she was and, and getting her diagnosis, I think, you know, that comment you made of you realized autism was all around us, I think it highlighted so much, particularly in my journey of my own neurodiverse traits um, and on the back of my OCD diagnosis and conversations with my with my psychiatrist about about autism you know it's clear that there are many of those traits that I carry as well <laughs> and so in some ways that's given us a touching point me and M but in other ways that makes our relationship kind of complicated at times as well um, and so yeah, I just want to unpack my hope is in this conversation, Nina, that we would be able to just share a little bit about some misconceptions maybe that neurotypical folk might have of neurodiverse kids and the way we parent our children. And um, and also that we're able to celebrate um, neurodiverse kids for who they are. I think it's apt you mentioned to me on an Instagram message that um, we're recording this during Neurodiversity Celebration Week, which is great. And so I wanted to start with this. Sienna Castellon, who founded Neurodiversity Celebration Week, says this. She says she founded it in 2018 because she wanted to change the way learning differences are perceived. As a teenager who is autistic and has ADHD, dyslexia and dyspraxia, her experience has been that people often focus on the challenges of neurological diversity, and she wanted to create or change the narrative and create a balanced view which focus e focuses equally on the talents and strengths of neurological um, diversity. So I'm hoping in our conversation today, like some of that um, comes through. Yeah. When, you know, in this journey as a parent of, um, of a, a neurodiverse kid, you know, what are some of the common misconceptions that you've encountered about neurodiversity? Um, I well, just like a disclaimer, because I'm still so so early in my journey, um, parenting a neurodiverse kid, but also in understanding like the full spectrum of neurodiversity. So uh, just like full clarity, basically, 
her son got diagnosed. And when her son got diagnosed, I turned to my partner. I was like, hey, <laughs> how about you now? <laughs> because we realized that there were so many similarities. And I think that there's such, there's such misconceptions about neurodiversity because so often the focus is on the challenges and the ways in which neurodiverse people do not behave in in what is largely a society organized for neurotypical people um, or to benefit or to enable neurotypical people. Yeah, so I feel like the um, the big part of the misconception is still in me, <laughs> to be honest, like is that I've I've had to come from a place of curiosity and interest and willing to learn um, and to put aside my own assumptions and preconceived ideas. Um, I've had to, as a parent myself, I've had to really learn to trust my boy, even as a six-year-old, to trust that he knows what is okay for him and what is not okay. And I think that that has actually been really challenging in the context of parenting around other people, because in the way that people, I mean, parenting is changing at the moment, and there's a lot more autonomy being given to children in this era or now. But when others, especially when he was younger, I was, even without knowing that he was neurodiverse, I knew that shouting at him didn't work. It was just not something that would ever, it wouldn't engage him, it wouldn't change his behavior. And so I would get looks from other moms, for example, if he was, if he hit somebody in the playground. And I didn't immediately shout at him. That didn't work with him. I had to get, like, even now I have to get down. I have to connect with him. I have to connect on his level. And when I connect with him, he's willing to engage with me. And he's willing to listen. And I feel like that's, I mean, that can go. Behavior is, is a huge part of, um, obviously, autism. And I think that that is a big part of the misconception because that's so often the most obvious thing is the behavior. Um, and I think what I would love to change about how people see neurodiversity is all the positive traits, the celebration of like, what, it, what does it mean to be neurodiverse? So the people that I know that are neurodiverse, the people that I really know well, are incredibly honest. They are loyal in a way that I've never encountered. Like they are like the best people in terms of like loyalty. Um, they have the biggest hearts, like this whole thing about like, empathy not existing in autism is just the biggest misconception like the people that I know that are autistic have huge empathy really deep feeling um, and I'm like those are incredible traits and those are the kinds of traits you really want in close relationships and they make incredible friends and partners so um, yeah I think that there's definitely like a I don't know if that answers the question, but um, there are loads of misconceptions and they come out in all kinds of ways. Something you said there really resonated with me when you, right in the beginning, you spoke about, you know, society being largely set up for, for neurotypical folk. And I think some of the misconceptions come out of that, that there is, there is one way of, of being, a norm, a one way of being that is, is so-called acceptable you know, even in, in my experience as a teacher, you know, kids who are neurodiverse were often labeled as naughty, non-compliant, loud, rude. Um, and, and when those kids were put in that box, you know, the opportunity to really 
care for them and reach them and give them all that they needed was like went missing. And, and as a parent of two neurotypical kids who are now teenagers, one out of school already, and then faced with the challenge of um, parenting an autistic kid has been exactly what you've mentioned. I have had to totally reimagine the way I approach parenting because everything I thought that worked and that was easy um, could be seen as difficult. But if I just shift the way that I engage with Emily, um, for example, and as you say, am, am led by her. She had the most amazing conversation with me the other day about ways in which I engage with her that like mess with her mojo. <laughs> she used something like that. <laughs> could, could you share like some of those? I tend to be quite pushy. So like she needs time to process stuff. And when she's ready to speak about something with me, she'll be ready and we'll speak. But I like, I want to sort stuff out straight away, you know? So like I keep pushing, I keep pushing. And that just makes her disconnect more. And the distance between us grows larger. And she said to me like, dad, if you just give me an opportunity to process and like come to terms with things, then we can have a great conversation. Another example is this, you know, um, she's been taking melatonin at night recently just to help um, her get to sleep and to get a good amount of sleep. And so the other night she was on her iPad, which she is able to be on until a certain time. And then, you know, she needs downtime from the screen before she goes to sleep or whatever. And so I just sort of off the cuff said, she asked for an extra 15 minutes. And I said, okay, you can have your melatonin first and then I'll give you an extra 15 minutes. And it was like total meltdown. And I couldn't understand it. Disaster. Yeah. And then she <laughs> said to me, she said to me, you know what, if you understand, A, that I have a routine and that routine is at nine o'clock I drink my melatonin. You've asked me to do that at quarter past eight. Plus you have taken something that is really important to me and you've used that as a condition for compliance like you're just not going to get anywhere with me we're going to fight <laughs> and, so, and so I think I mean the beautiful thing is as a 12 year old she's able to so articulate yeah yeah articulate the, those things mm. but I think if one of my neurotypical friends who has neurotypical kids had to hear that kind of negotiation i know what their response is, will be and i'm not judging them for this response but the response would be you know that kind of negotiation is just like you know she's just being naughty she's emotionally manipulating you whatever and and my mind shift has had to be to to parent in a way that centers her in the conversation like you said that centers her in in the approach um, and man I'm still learning a, a heck of a lot but uh, you know it really resonated with you with you what you shared uh, are, are there any other ways Nina that you've had to like adapt your parenting style and I know for you this was probably quite early in your parenting journey but in terms of how you might have been conditioned to think about parenting you know you mentioned the idea of not shouting but getting down to his level are there are there other things that you've had to unlearn in terms of your understanding of being a parent and change in this journey? So I think that what I've had to unlearn, it's been a really um, 
it's been a really personal process because I think that it's so linked to as a parent, just it's your parenting journey is so linked to your own inner state, isn't mm. it? Mm. Like how we parent our kids is so linked to our own emotional state, our own state of regulation. And I think that that's true whether you're neurotypical or not and whether you've got neurotypical kids or not. You know, like it's, it's your, your vibe is going to impact on your kid's vibe. And so I feel like there's been a massive learning curve, a very steep learning curve for both me and my partner and my boy <laughs> um, in the sense that we've had to all kind of find, find, kind of like do a little dance around each other and find, find the things that work and that don't work. And that goes across so many parts of day-to-day -day and life. So you mentioned an example that um, emphasized how important routine is. And I think that th those are one of the typical things that most parenting books will say, like when you've got a baby, they're like, a routine will help your kids. But a routine for a child that's autistic is safety. And it is security in a way that I think where other people can be flexible or other children might be able to be flexible, I, I think it really just unsettles. And what I'm finding interesting now as a six-year-old, he's starting to verbalize when I change his routine. So for example, today, he has tennis for an hour before school. I was like, well, I'll just add an extra snack to his bag. And he was like, okay. And then I was like, oh, maybe I should just add two snacks, which sounds so trivial. I'm like, I'm adding two snacks. Like any other kid would be like, rah, rah. He was like, but, but I have an orange for my morning snack at school. So I was like, yeah, yeah, you can still have your orange. And then you can have this one after. And he's like, if I don't get an orange, I'll have the other snack. And I'm like, no, no, you can have both. And in his mind, he's trying to process that the routine that he's used to is going to change. And that just leads to, in terms of parenting, I feel like my job as a parent is to preempt, especially as a six-year-old, everything, which is massive I mean it's it's massive like I'm it's a full-time job like thinking about how you can prep things for your child and prep other people for your child because I think the world is not very aware I mean many many people are aware of neurodiversity and how that plays out in different circumstances but many people are not which means that you're preempting with every club that they're going to with every teacher that they're engaging with you're trying to say, hey, these are some things that work really, really well. And if, if you can enable him in these ways, he'll be fine. But so often I think our experience is that people, it's these small, small, small adjustments that make the biggest difference for him. And I think so often people underestimate the difference that they will make. So preparing him for a change or a transition or explaining like, why a change is going to happen or explaining what the next exercise is going to be in terms of teaching. Um, and then there's sensory stuff. I'm not sure if any of your children have um, sensory processing stuff, but it, that's huge. There's a, um, there's a speech and language therapist on Instagram called, or she calls herself Nero Wild. And she does these great illustrations um, that explain some of those triggers and what happens. And she's got this one that has this bar that shows like the different things that impact on neurodiverse people. And basically, if he has to, if he has sensory overload, that reduces his capacity to operate in an environment. And if he, if somebody is helping him manage that sensory input, 
he has way more capacity to be able to engage and do whatever. And it's little, little things, but I think so often they are, people are just not aware of them yet. So, um, those are those are lots of the things that basically impact on um, on parenting. So I'm constantly thinking about: Are his clothes going to be comfortable? Is he well fed? So a routine for us means he has good sleep, so important for him. That he has that he eats well. That he has snacks, basically snacks all the time. So his blood sugar levels are like even. That he has loads of good one to one time with us. So I feel like that's one of the biggest things we've realized is that he. He is deeply feeling, he's got huge empathy and a huge heart, but he runs on love. Like he needs, he needs loads of love. So that means quality time, morning, day and night. He needs to know he's got a good connection. And the thing that basically unravels him most in any circumstance is disconnection. Again, thank you so much for listening to this podcast. Part three of this conversation will drop very soon. So stick around for that because it's going to be good.